Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity again to gather to worship, um, to sing your praises, uh, to gather around your word, to encourage one another, um, to pray together. Um, We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would come and minister um, in and through your word. It's your word. We ask, Lord, that you would minister to it according to each one of our needs. Um, Bless this preacher, Father. Help him to communicate what it is you want him to communicate, but his words alone will not do anything. Uh, You, Holy Spirit, have to work, and we ask that you would do so for the glory of Jesus Christ, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. The passage we're going to look at today is a, is a pretty simple passage. Um, it deals with some of the basics of being a Christian. Um, in any area of life, the basics, uh, the fundamentals can be easily overlooked. Uh, for fun today, I googled this concept, the idea, not today, but this past week, I googled this concept of overlooking the basics, overlooking the fundamentals. And when you Google it, you get a whole list of, uh, wow, that's cool, uh, get a whole list of... Uh, whole list of uh, disciplines and areas of life that people are concerned about, that people are overlooking the basics. And I came across one um, called Back to Basics, the Four Fundamentals of Skiing that Everyone Always Overlooks. Now, I don't, I've never skied, and I don't have any plans of skiing, but I thought, well, that sounds interesting. I wonder what the, the four basics of skiing are that everyone always overlooks. And uh, they, weren't, they weren't super exciting to me. Uh, number one, core strength and ability. Uh, number two, muscle endurance. Number three, dynamic strength and power. But then number four, train on the mountain. And I thought, how can you possibly overlook this particular fundamental? I would, this, is, this seems like it should be number one uh, uh, basic that you don't want to overlook. Well, the point is, in the Christian life, let's not overlook the basics. Let's not overlook the basics. Um, First Peter is a a letter that Peter wrote to followers of Jesus who were experiencing opposition for their faith. They were experiencing friction with the world. They were experiencing friction with their culture and their governments because they love Jesus. And much of First Peter is about how to live in the midst of that friction, how to be faithful to the Lord Uh, without losing your mind or losing your faith, especially when the world really, really doesn't want you to be faithful to Jesus Christ. And what's interesting about the basics uh, talked about in this passage is that they're found all throughout the entire New Testament and not not always in the context of persecution. In other words, these instructions in this passage aren't persecution specific. They aren't tailor-made for persecution. They're not like fire extinguishers that you only pull out in use of emergencies. They're rather to be a part of who we are no matter what life is like, whether it's a bowl of cherries or whether it's the pits. Um, And yet these are still to be practiced when the culture and the government become antagonistic to the Christian faith. These basics are not to be forgotten when life gets tough because, A, they should be fundamental to our DNA as believers, And B, they do actually aid and support us when life gets difficult. If anything, when opposition to our faith ramps up, we should double down on these basics. So why am I preaching on this passage today? There's several reasons, but two big ones. It's good to be reminded of the fundamentals, 
And second, we, we live in a country where opposition appears, opposition to the Christian faith appears to be rising. Um, and so these basics will definitely, will definitely help. So let's dig in and look at these three basics. The first one is this. We are to concern ourselves with prayer. We're to concern ourselves with prayer. Verse 7 says, Now the end of all things is near, therefore be serious and disciplined for prayer. Isn't prayer a basic Christian practice? A basic Christian obligation, privilege, duty? Abraham prayed, Moses prayed, David prayed, Elijah prayed, Daniel prayed. And then along came Jesus, the Son of God, and what did he do? He prayed. And his disciples prayed, and their followers prayed. And then the believers in the second century prayed, and the believers in the third century prayed, the believers in the fourth century prayed. You get the idea. On through the 21st century, Christians pray. Praying is what Christians do. The Bible says in our passage to be serious. Be serious and disciplined for prayer. We are to be sober-minded and self-controlled for prayer. In other words, the Bible calls us to alertness so that we will pray and alertness when we do pray. This talk of being, now this talk of being sober-minded and serious may make you think that God wants us to be dour in our attitude and sour in our expression all the time. But that's not what being serious means because, in fact, one of the fruit, fruit of the Spirit is Joy, right? We're to be joyful Christians, um, even in the midst of difficulty, whether personal or uh, national. We are to be joyful. We're to be joyful, not sour. So to be, sour, uh, to be sober-minded and serious doesn't mean we should be somber. It means we should be, rather be realistic. We should be reality-minded. Many people, many people are into diversions um, and into entertainment. As a means of escape, or worse, abuse substances uh, for the purpose of diversion. And others just like entertainment. They like entertainment so much that they, they live to be entertained. TV, video games, social media, books, sports, music, travel, whatever. Um, now, these forms of entertainment aren't in and of themselves bad, um, depending on what the content is. But they become problematic when they squeeze good Christian habits out of your life. And they become problematic if you give excessive amounts of time to them. If we are to be reality minded, what then is the reality of which we are to be mindful? Verse 7 indicates what it is. Now the end of all things is near, is what he says. Now the end of all things is near, therefore be sober minded and self controlled for prayer. What does that mean? Well, it means, for one thing, that Jesus could return at any moment, Jesus could come back at any moment. He could come back today. I've lived in that reality for a long time. I remember when I was young, my parents once took me to a uh, prophecy conference. I think it was at the Coliseum. Jack Van Impey was there. And he was talking, and he really emphasized that night the reality that Christ could come back this very night. And so that's been impressed upon me. And that's something that Jesus always taught. Now, Jesus has not come back for 2,000 years. But remember, a day with the Lord is like what? like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day so in a sense he hasn't come back for two days right it's just been a weekend he's been gone from god's point of view 
But the reality is he could, he could come back, and he is coming back at some point. Jesus taught that we are to live our lives watchful and ready should he come back at an hour that we least expect it. And the biblical, the biblical teaching is that God may bring the end at any time and that we are to live with this in mind. We're to live with this in mind. And further, even if God should not end, bring history to an end in your lifetime, there is an end to your lifetime, right? If, if, if Christ doesn't come back before you die, that means that death comes and that ends your lifetime. And like the fact that we don't know when Jesus will come back, you do not know on which day it is that you will die, that you will pass away. And as it could be that Jesus will come back today, it could be, I hope not, this could be your last day on earth as well. So the end of all things is near. In other words, it's eminent. It's eminent. That is to say, the time is short, and therefore we should be serious and disciplined for prayer. And when we think about being serious for prayer, I think about Christ. I think about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night before Judas and the soldiers walked in to arrest him, the night before he was crucified. Jesus was about to undergo a great trial, and he was praying. We find him praying. And the disciples were also about to undergo a great trial, and Jesus admonished them to pray. He told them, uh, from Luke chapter 22, he told them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And again, a little, bit bit, a little bit later, why are you sleeping, he asked them. Get up and pray so that you won't enter into temptation. That night, Jesus prayed. He spent a long time in prayer. He prayed and he was faithful, he was faithful through the trial that was his. The disciples that night didn't pray and they failed. They deserted the Lord and Peter himself denied Jesus three times. We live in serious times. We live in serious times, and you, as a believer, are called to watch and pray. Too many Christians are religious about many things, except the things they're supposed to be religious about. Too many Christians are religious about many things, but not religious about prayer. They may be religious about TV and Netflix and Disney Plus and ESPN, but not about prayer. Religious about Facebook and Pinterest and Twitter and YouTube, but not about prayer. Religious about gaming, but not prayer. Religious about the news, but not prayer. Religious about yard work or continual home improvement, but not prayer. Religious about shopping, but not prayer. Now again, these things that I just mentioned, are they in and of themselves bad? Not necessarily. It depends on what the content is. But do they squeeze out the things that are really important? We need to keep the things that are really important at the top of our list. Be sober-minded and disciplined to pray. So be in prayer for yourself. You should be praying for yourself, for holiness, for godliness. Pray for resistance to temptation. Pray for yourself for faithfulness whenever suffering comes in whatever form. Pray for faithfulness in witnessing. For faithfulness should persecution come, and we hope not. For courage and boldness to follow Jesus Christ no matter what the cost. Be in prayer for your family. Be in prayer for your family, for, for their salvation, for those who don't know the Lord. Be in prayer for that God would give to them faith and repentance, that they won't fall away, that they will glorify God even in the midst of suffering and trials. 
I like the example of Epaphras in Colossians chapter 4. Um, the Apostle Paul writes, Epaphras is always contending for you in his prayers so that you can stand mature and fully assured in everything God, God wills. Epaphras is always contending for you in his prayers. Who are you contending for in your prayers? Who are you contending for in your prayers that they will stand fully mature before the Lord? Your kids? Your spouse? Your friends? Be in prayer for your country. Be in prayer for your country. Our country needs prayer. Be in prayer for your coworkers and your friends. Uh, David, not here today, but he, he's often, he, I've heard, not often, but I've heard him remark a few times before that some of the people that you pray for, you may be the only one in the world that is praying for them. You may be the only one that is praying for them. So contend in, in prayer uh, for them. Be serious and disciplined for prayer. We are to concern ourselves with prayer. The second basic is this. We are to concern ourselves with God's people. We are to concern ourselves with God's people. Concern yourselves with prayer. Concern yourselves with God's people. This is what verses 8 to 11 talk about. Above all, maintain an intense love for each other since love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaining. Based on the gift each one has received, use it to serve others as, God man, as good managers of the very grace of God. This is a basic to concern ourselves with God's people. Jesus told his disciples on the night he was betrayed, um, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. If you love one another. We are, of course, to love our neighbor. We're even to love our enemies, but especially we are to love one another. Galatians 6.10 is a good example. Therefore, as we have opportunity, we must work for the good of all, especially for those who belong to the household of faith. And what, what, the, what our passage does, it gives us three examples of how we demonstrate concern for God's people. And the first one is, in fact, love. It's love, verse 8. Above all, maintain an intense love for each other since love covers a multitude of sins. Do you love your fellow believers? Do you love your fellow believers in this church? The verse says we are to maintain an intense love for each other. We are to love one another intensely, or other versions say fervently, or love one another deeply, or love one another earnestly. The Greek word behind this word uh, earnest or fervent is the ideal of full exertion, full exertion. Our love for one another is to be full steam ahead as opposed to being casual or lackadaisical. We are to be working for the good of one another, whether in prayer or in help or in being conscious of how our example and choices might affect our fellow believers. And in loving one another, we are imitating, we are imitating God. John 3.16 was read earlier in the service. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Or Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ, what? Died. Christ died for us. 1 John 3.16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And then it goes on. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. And sometimes, often, that laying down of our lives for our brothers is metaphorical, okay? We don't actually die for our brothers, but sometimes, 
for some believers, it's literal. Let me ask you, does Jesus love you fervently or casually? What do you think the Bible says? Fervently. He loves you fervently, and we are to demonstrate that kind of love for others. Another example of how we concern ourselves with other people is hospitality. Hospitality. Verse 9, be hospitable to one another without complaining. Be hospitable to one another without complaining. We're to be hospitable. Now, in the early church, local churches, they didn't have church buildings. They met from house to house. They met in home. Well, they met in the temple originally, but then they met from house to house. They met in homes. And for, for that to happen, the homeowner in which the uh, church met had to show hospitality, had to be hospitable, had to open up his home and let people in. Now we have church buildings. Um, and it's important, it's important in this building, in our church home here, when visitors come into our home here, that we be hospitable, right? It's important that we be hospitable. In fact, we have greeters. We have four designated greeters who uh, rotate and are, uh, that's, that's part of their ministry is to be hospitable. They're the face of the church. They're the first thing the church see, uh, the visitors see when they come in. Our ushers are to be hospitable. But this is something that we are all to be here at this church, be hospitable towards visitors. Um, but being hospitable also means inviting people over to your homes. Now, this has become a little difficult in the era of COVID, but as we come out of this, this is something that uh, hopefully we can increase more of. Um, inviting one another to our homes. Hospitality is another way we show concern for one another. I heard, I heard a preacher uh, preaching recently, and he, talk, he briefly touched on hosp- hospitality, but he said, he said to his congregation, congregation, you should know what each other's homes look like what he said in comment on hospitality. Uh, John and Jackie have been uh, leading a small group in their home for, I think it's been about 17 years. I think it started in 2004, but I'm not sure. Um, They've been leading a small group in their home for about 17 years. And my family has been a part of that for, for 17 years. We've enjoyed John and Jackie's hospitality for 17 years. And it's moved from three, it's been in three different houses. I mean, it started out in Parnell and then it moved out to, Millstone or whatever the street was. I don't remember the name of it. Medallion? Yeah. And now it's on another street, the name of which I don't know. Um, but I, I can get there. And in that, in that time, you know, when John and Jackie started this, it was just John and Jackie. And now it's John and Jackie and five kids, too. <laughs> so that, that's been fun, really. And we, get, well, we, we gather together for Bible study. And we eat together. Um, and there's... Uh, and burden sharing happens. We share one another's burdens. And we pray for one another. And it's not just my family and John and Jackie. There are others that come too. And, and you're, are other people welcome to come? Yeah, I knew that. I knew that was the, I knew that was the answer. <clears throat> We've put an announcement in the bulletin. So if you're interested in that, talk to John or Jackie. Um, but, you know, this, this, this hospitality, this is just one example of hospitality. My family has benefited tremendously from this hospitality as we've gone through good times and as we've gone through difficult times. And hospitality is absolutely vital in times of persecution, in times when, um, when there is rising opposition to the faith. Uh, let me just give you a sample of what, what hospitality does around the world. 
Uh, homes have been homes around the world have been the place where believers have gone when their church buildings have been burned to the ground or destroyed or have been shut down by the government. Homes have been the place where believers have gathered to worship in secret. Hospitality is important. Many Christians have taken new converts into their homes to live with them for a while because these new converts have been kicked out of their own homes because they decided to follow Jesus. This is uh, Montita. Montita lives in Laos. Um, She's 16 years old. Um, A friend invited her to church, and when she went to church... Uh, she went and accept, uh, she she went forward and accepted Jesus as her savior. When her mom and her stepfather found out that she was a Christian, they tried many many times to try to get her to give up her faith in Jesus, but she wouldn't do it. And her stepfather was worried that if other people, others in the others in the community, found out that he had a Christian in his home, that he would lose his job. And so finally, her stepfather kicked her out of the house. Sixteen years old kicked her out of the house and said, you can come back once you decide not to follow Jesus anymore. So what happened? A pastor and his family stepped in, invited Montita into their home, and she now lives with them currently. Hospitality. How important hospitality can be, especially in time when, when, when life gets difficult. Homes have been the place where believers have prepared one another and encouraged one another and prayed for one another to live out their faith in the hostile world around them. Our final example of the concern that we should have is service. One of the, the third basic is service. Okay, what, what are the basics? These aren't all the basics. That's why the title of this message is Some Basics. But Peter talks about these three. Love, hospitality, uh, love, um, I'm sorry, I'm getting myself mixed up. Prayer, thank you. Prayer, concern for God's people, and concern for... um, Yeah, I really am mixed up. We haven't even gotten to the third one yet. Okay, this is how we show concern for one's... We're under point number two. Let's just review. Point number two, three examples. Love, hospitality, and now service. Uh, What does the Bible say here? Verses 10 and 11. Based on the gift each one has received, use it to serve others as as good managers of the very grace of God. If anyone speaks, it should be as one who speaks God's words. If anyone serves, it should be from the strength that God provides. What does the Bible say here? It says um, that, one, you have a gift from God. You have a gift from God. If you're a believer, if you're a Christian, you have a gift from God. Each person has a gift. God has given to every believer some ability or capacity, at least one to every believer. And the Bible lists some of these in different spots in the New Testament. Gifts mentioned in the Bible include teaching, preaching, administration, mercy, faith, tongues, interpretation of tongues, gifts of healing, encouragement, giving, leading, etc. And these are not exhaustive. In fact, the reference in verse 10 to the varied grace of God, the multifaceted grace of God, suggests that there are many different kinds of gifts. As an example... In Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 9 talks about a woman named Tabitha, also known as Dorcas. Um, she had a gift for making clothes, and she used that to minister to others. In Exodus 31, we're told about a man named Bezalel, who was given abilities as an artist and a builder to work with wood and precious metals. In 1 Chronicles 15, we're told about Asaph and many others who were skilled um, and had musical gifts. 
So each person, each believer, has at least one capacity or ability from God. So, believer, you have a gift. Number two, use it to serve others. You have a gift. God has given you a gift. Use it to serve others. That's the gist of verses 10 and 11. God's given you a gift. Now use that gift to help others, to minister to others, to help others. Love your brothers and sisters in Christ fervently. Be hospitable to your brothers and sisters in Christ. Serve your brothers and sisters in Christ. These are three examples of what happens when we concern ourselves with God's people. And then the third concern, now we're finally here, we are to concern ourselves with God's glory. We are to concern ourselves with God's glory. The end of verse 11. So that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ in everything. To him belong the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Christians are to live for the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10.31 So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. We don't live for our own honor and glory. We live for the glory and honor of God. We bring him glory on earth and in heaven when we joyfully order our lives according to his word. We live to make him famous. We live to make him famous. For you NFL fans, when Tampa Bay won the Super Bowl this year, who got the glory? Tom, I heard Tom Brady. That's exactly, that, that's, that's my impression. Tom Brady got the glory. How do we know he got the glory? Because that's who everyone was talking about. That's who everyone was talking about after the Super Bowl. Talk about God. Talk about Jesus. Give him glory. Give him the credit for the praiseworthy things in your life. Live in such a way that when people reflect on your life, they see and talk about Jesus. Jesus lived for the glory of his Father. Sometimes we see in the Gospels that when Jesus did a miracle, the people were praising God. They were praising God. Jesus did the miracle and they were praising, they were praising God. Matthew 5.16 Let your light shine before men. Why? So that you can be praised by men? That's not what it says. Let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. They may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. I read a story recently of a man, named, a man in uh, Iran whose name is Ibrahim. Ibrahim. Uh, he spent seven years in prison because of his faith. And then he's, he has spent the last three years in uh, in-country exile. In other words, he's still in Iran, but he was forced to live a thousand miles from his home. Um, last September, he received an unexpected package of Bibles at the post office um, while the Ministry of Intelligence was spying on him. And so when he received these Bibles, then they arrested him for engaging in propaganda. Uh, before his court, the reason I'm sharing his story at the moment is because I was caught by what he said. Before his court appearance, um, he had this to say, I ask Christians to pray not for my acquittal, but for the great name of God to be glorified. I ask Christians to pray not for my acquittal, but for the great name of God to be glorified. So no matter what happens, we are to live for the glory of God. Well, I want to wrap this up. This is Tommy Moe. Um, he was a he won gold, a gold medal in uh, downhill skiing in the Winter Olympics a long time ago. I don't, I don't know what year. 
um, after his victory, he was asked he was asked about his thought processes as he was skiing um, for the gold. And he said, uh, I kept it simple. I focused on skiing, not on winning, not on where I'd place. I remembered to breathe. Sometimes I don't, he says. When the world, when the world around us antagonizes us, antagonizes us when, when friction is on the rise, um, when life gets complicated and confusing, focus on what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Focus on what it means to be a follower of Christ. Focus on the basics. Pray, love and serve one another, and glorify God. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these basic reminders about what, what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And in fact, Jesus Christ modeled all these things for us. Prayer, loving and serving others, and glorifying you. Help us to do that as well. May, may we be your faithful followers, bringing you honor and glory in all that we do. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.